0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. The philosopher, Sir Roger Scruton, has died at the age of 75. The author of over 50 books and the recipient of numerous honours, including the Czech Medal of Merit First Class, Roger was the preeminent English conservative intellectual of his generation. I spoke to Daniel Hannan, the Conservative Member of the European Parliament for South East England and one of the intellectual architects of Brexit, about his lifelong friendship with Roger, whom he first met at the age of 16. Tell me how you first met Roger Scruton.
2: I met Roger at a very uh, influential moment in my life. I was very young. He got me, if you like, at a fairly malleable age i was 16 and he had come to my school marlborough to do a talk to the philosophy society and the talk wasn't especially political if i remember correctly it was about Wittgenstein and language and he spoke as he always did in a slightly shy slightly diffident manner but doing his audience the courtesy of treating them as his intellectual equals and of course You know, uh, as teenage boys, we were all very flattered by this. But when he finished, there was a rather awkward moment because it had been such a clever and well put together talk. uh, Nobody wanted to be the first to ask a question in case they kind of looked somehow crass or or foolish. And so more to fill the silence and cover the embarrassment than anything else. I said to him, what do you see as the role of a conservative thinker? in today's politics and he sort of blinked amiably behind his glasses and then he said the role of a conservative thinker is to reassure the people that their prejudices are true and i thought that was the most brilliant summary of, 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 of if you like of sort of Burkean and toryism and in a way I, i've never strayed too far from that kind of lodestar in the 20-plus years that I've been in elected politics, up to including and through the Brexit referendum, it was always a question of reassuring people that the half-educated intellectuals who claimed the cultural leadership of the country were not as clever as they thought they were.
1: To um, people unfamiliar with Burkean conservatism, they won't much like the sound of um, trusting your prejudices. Um, They'll think you mean being um xenophobic and sexist and dare i say it racist um but you don't he didn't mean that did he
2: no and one of the interesting things about the semantic shift of our generation has been the way in which a number of words including prejudice have come to be redefined in a in an essentially leftist way so prejudice literally means prejudging a new situation on the basis of your past experience. Uh, If you see a very well-dressed person, your prejudice tells you that they're probably well-off. If you see a politician knocking on your door, your prejudice tells you that he's probably after your vote. Uh, What Burke taught, and and Roger's life really was a great amplification of this when it came to, to philosophy, is that life would be unlivable if you had to go through treating every situation from first principles rather than being guided by what burke called the wisdom of your ancestors and R- roger developed uh, and enlarged this idea and it was really the key i think to his political philosophy uh, he was a great exponent of the nation state. He was a great exponent of uh, our common law system. He was a great believer in units that had evolved organically rather than being planned or imposed. And I think at the core of Roger's sense of what it meant to be a conservative was a a belief that good things that are constructed socially, that have evolved and uh, and have arisen through a, a collective effort from different people... Uh, can be very easily torn away but then can't easily be rebuilt and therefore for him conservatism was always about a deep love for our institutions for our laws for our families for our nations Uh, and he never really had much time for the sense of indignation and anger that underpins a lot of the radical left the sense that things need to be torn down and made anew
1: He talked a few times about um, a moment of revelation for him, which was during the 1968 protests in Paris, when he was in Paris to see a girl. Um, And uh, he suddenly had this moment of clarity, this almost eureka moment, in which he found himself on the side of, of everything the students were opposed to and trying to pull down, um, did he ever talk to you about that that particular moment?
2: Well, he did, and he he wrote about it. Uh, I, I think Roger, as a young man, he was at uh, he was at, at grammar school in in Wickham, and he was obviously, I mean, you know, a lot of us knew boys at school who were like this, who were just unfeasibly clever, but a bit. Um, Uh, A bit sort of Nietzschean, a bit on their own, wandering lonely and thinking great thoughts and intimidating. And Roger's life, in a way, was a journey from that into a kind of more socialized form of of conservatism. And I I think that moment uh, as a student in Paris was part of understanding that uh, the, the revolutionary impulse was an incredibly black and destructive one. Uh, he then went on. I remember he he once put it. He said, I, "I I was an actor in my own drama, until, funnily enough, he took up fox hunting, and that led him to understand the, in in a practical rather than just in an abstract or academic sense, the value of community, the value of of a group of people coming together voluntarily, from no purpose other than their own mutual pleasure." But each of them playing a part that heightened the enjoyment of of all the others, and I think he then began to, to if you like, to live his own philosophy. And I think his his personality slightly changed uh, and mellowed in age as he as he became less the uh, you know the wanderer above the clouds and more the the, the fully socialised uh, member of the community who played the organ in his local church.
1: Do you think that um, he's vulnerable to the charge that he presented himself as an Englishman who had this instinctive, gut like attachment to our traditions and to our customs, uh, these uh, semi conscious? prejudices if you like uh, that comprised his political outlook and that they were to be valued and not dismissed and were better guides to political action than the highfalutin ideas of um, French post-structuralist theorists um, but at the same time he arrived at um, that place because of a with a sort of romantic conception of Englishness and in his head, and as you say, uh, it all fell into place when he took up fox hunting. But in a sense, wasn't he um, guilty of the sin of the intellectual himself? It was an idea which seduced him uh, rather than a kind of an instinctive attraction
2: for Englishness. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting question, Toby. I mean, the. The danger, the temptation when we are talking politically about someone is to see their personality through the prism of politics. And it's striking that the immediate kind of reaction to his death, the, the, the first draft obituaries were all heavily weighted towards the recent controversy about his sacking as a, an architectural adviser. And of course, that is recent and we all tend to be influenced by the proximity of events. But it really was an irrelevant uh, episode in the scheme of his thought. And even to, to, uh, to try and reduce his thought to what he thought about you know, nationalism or conservative politics or whatever, I think is, is missing the, the vastness of his intellectual enterprise i i I found that he lost me only i mean he he was a very very good conversationalist because he was interested in other people he was a a very gentle and courteous man and i think everyone enjoyed talking to him whether they were philosophers or whether they were gawky teenagers he he had a a natural gift for that but but the the the, the came a point with almost everyone when when we couldn't follow because he was he was too clever for us and and that for me always came when he went into pure philosophy Mm -hmm. and he would he would do it quite rarely but sometimes he would just talk about pure logic uh and 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 meaning of words and and so on and i would i'd have to concentrate very hard and i'd just about grasp what he was saying for about five minutes you know so when he when he was looking at you know french uh, post-structuralism and and uh, you know post-modernism and all this kind of stuff it's terribly important to understand he he knew that uh, he knew these philosophies inside out he was not coming at them with a sort of gut feeling that this was all ridiculous pretentious continental bullshit uh, you know, he he spoke many languages and read many and wrote many languages fluently. He never dismissed things until he'd properly tried to get into the uh, outlook of the of the writer. So he was, you know, he knew the, his Camus and his Sartre and all the rest of it extremely well. And the reason that he'd moved beyond it was not because he was just coming at it from a sort of position of. Of joke, kind of anglo-Saxon pragmatism and and anti-intellectualism, but because he'd he'd moved beyond it, he'd 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 seen where the intellectual flaws were, where the limitations were, and he'd come up with something better. And so I, I know there is this temptation. you're quite right, and you you get it very often from his uh, his critics on the left that he was kind of the unthinking man's thinking man, that he was the guy who could, you know, Provide a beautiful Aristotelian defense of what was basically a gut prejudice that you didn't like Brussels or you didn't like gay marriage or whatever, but I think that is really missing the largeness of his thought and the completeness of his philosophy he he uh, if he gave reassurance to the uh, if you like the, uh, the the mainstream opinions of the of the non Intellectual masses in the country. Uh, it was because he understood that those opinions had evolved for a very good reason through trial and error over centuries. And they were right, not because they were kind of gut prejudices, but because they worked.
1: After you met him at Marlborough, um, you then became friends and you remained in contact with him uh, when you became a student
2: at Oxford. Is that right? Yes. Even before then, my uh, one thing that I was very lucky about is that my gap year coincided with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Right. And so I was able to get a ringside seat uh, and I spent a lot of the first half of 1990 in what we then still called Eastern Europe uh, in Poland, Romania, Czechoslovakia, East Germany and so on. And I, I remembered that I'd met him a couple of years earlier uh, at Marlborough, so I, I tracked him down. He was uh, in those days still living in this rather sort of um, bohemian bachelor pad in Bayswater. Uh, he hadn't uh, he hadn't yet moved to his big farmhouse uh, outside Chippenham, and uh, he gave me a list of uh, contacts in Central and Eastern Europe of, of dissident anti-communist writers and thinkers, and gave me a load of stuff to take them. Um, Things that they couldn't yet get uh, on the other side of the Iron Curtain. I mean, often very banal things like uh, printer for photocopiers and so on. So um, I I duly went off and and met a lot of these people, which was an uh, an incredible way, of course, of, of witnessing the transition to democracy. Um, and I, I think that, that had a huge influence on me because, of course, I was seeing all this through, if you like, Scrutonian eyes. And one of the things, just en passant, that, that was unmissable if you were in those countries at the time is that what was behind those anti-communist revolutions was primarily a patriotic impulse. I know that it's nowadays politically correct to say it was a return to Europe. They wanted to be kind of, you know, uh, sort of members of the EU with with all the, the usual kind of modern uh, concepts of, of liberalism. That wasn't really what was motivating the crowds. What was motivating the crowds in, in Bucharest, in Prague, whatever, was wanting an end to foreign occupation of their countries and a restoration of national sovereignty. And they understood that all of the other things they wanted – Personal freedom, uh, free elections, the rule of law were consequent to getting their independence back as nation states and i I was able to see that because I'd been speaking to him and was in the company of a lot of his friends and contacts in that part of the world and so genuinely i'm not exaggerating when I say I think he he shaped the, the whole of my life politically because the, the, the that understanding of why Generally, the people are wiser than their leaders, never left me.
3: We've reached the halfway point in this Quillette podcast, and it's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser. And suddenly you're able to read, or listen to, expert 15-minute summaries of popular non-fiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalogue and you'll find all sorts of big brain books, like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Ewell Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention The Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course Twelve Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, Thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast.
1: It's interesting that um, your experience and Roger's experience of um, seeing the Berlin Wall collapse and those Marxist control systems fall so quickly and so dramatically um, left you feeling um, Eurosceptic and believers in national self-determination, whereas for many people who witnessed the same thing and who were part of the dissident opposition movements behind the Iron Curtain, people like Donald Tusk, um, it had the opposite effect. It persuaded them that um national self-determination wasn't the answer that um that had um in part inspired the territorial ambitions of russia and that the answer was um uh uh, the um uh, collapse of national borders free movement um the european union as a counterweight to um uh communism um why do you think it um it so persuaded you and entrenched your own Euroscepticism, rather than the effect it had on others which was to persuade them uh, that the european union was the answer and mm. that was the mark that was the direction well, in which history was heading
2: i'm not sure that they were so convinced by the experience of the 1989 revolutions i think they were so convinced later and as a consequence of an extremely well-funded and well-constructed propaganda effort by believers in the european project and the reason i say that is that i can remember meeting an awful lot of dissidents and people who were gearing up to fight their first free elections i, I was in in that part of the world in general, in the period when free elections had been scheduled, but not yet held. So the communists were still in power, but change was on its way. And I met an awful lot of people, hungarians Slovaks, Poles, and so on, who were uh, in the opposition. And at that stage, they were. there was nothing Europhile about them. They were Thatcher, Reagan conservatives. They'd been You know, they'd been listening to to, to Margaret Thatcher on Radio Free America or Voice of America, whatever it's called. They were uh, enormously pro-Anglosphere, and they were against anything that smacked of the the old communist system, including the idea of a a supranational ideology uh, that was bigger than the nation state. What then happened, I'm afraid, is that the British and American conservatives left the field. and. A lot of these people were um, got at by the Conrad Adenauer Foundation, the you know various EU projects. They were they were identified as young politicians or writers or whatever. They were you know taken out to Adenauer's house on Lake Como. They were surrounded by a bunch of, uh, of committed Eurofederalists, and they kind of osmosed those opinions. And I, I, we were. As a a non-federalist country and as a non-federalist party at that time, we were incredibly remiss in in deserting that field for as long as we did. Uh, But I I just don't see how you can interpret the fall of the Soviet Union or the breakup of Yugoslavia or of the Ottoman or Habsburg or uh, Romanov empires or any other supranational body other than as a reminder – that freedom and individual autonomy and accountable government only really work in a unit within which people feel enough in common one with another to accept government from each other's hands. And th- this is what Roger always used to speak about as the politics of the first person plural. He was he understood that for any of the other things to work, for for a functioning open society to work, There had to be a we, there had to be a unit with which we identify when we use the word we. And if you don't have that, you have a sort of Syrian or Iraqi type uh, breakdown because there isn't a sense of unifying loyalty or common affinity to make democracy possible.
1: How influential do you think Roger was? Uh, He certainly um, had A loyal group of followers, many conservative politicians, journalists, writers, intellectuals um, uh, were heavily influenced by him. Um, But if you look at the broader picture, um, Karl Marx may have been defeated at the ballot box uh, in Europe, but Antonio Gramsci uh, has swept all before him in the cultural arena, Um, as someone who uh, tried to stem the tide of progressivism, tried to arrest the decline of uh, Christianity, tried to stand up for uh, the values underpinning Western civilization, Roger hasn't been, wasn't that influential. Um, He's been on the losing side in these in 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 the culture war almost from the beginning do you think that's fair or do you think um, or do you think
2: I'm I'm overregging it well it is certainly the case that a conservative intellectual occupies a space that is invisible to a commissioning editor uh, the kind of people who decide who gets invited on Newsnight or the Today program generally, can't accept that a conservative intellectual exists, or if they can, they see him as a sort of anomalous kind of class traitor. So there is always a space in the national conversation for, uh, you know, Kelvin McKenzie, or uh, Richard Littlejohn, or or Jeremy Clarkson. But someone like Roger, who writes about, you know, religious art, and, and German philosophy, and linguistics, and so on, but from a right of center point of view, tends not to get the sort of reach that he would do if he were on the left. That said, I think his influence is only going to grow with each passing year. And in this sense, I think that the, the example you gave of Karl Marx is actually quite a telling one. Uh, Karl Marx is not very widely read these days, but he remains deeply influential by the following measure. People quote him unconsciously. Every time they use the word capitalist, every time they use the word exploit in an economic sense, every time they say the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, they are, without realising it, quoting pure Marxist theory. And I think Roger, as and I, I, I think he was without question the greatest conservative philosopher of our age. He was. I, I, I don't think. I mean, there, are, you know, the, the there are other candidates, but nobody who gets close in terms of. The comprehensiveness and the versatility, uh, and the 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 sheer largeness of his interests, Uh, I think he will be again someone who is quoted unconsciously. People will be reflecting his ideas at second or third hand, without realising that they come from the pen ultimately of Roger Scruton, and that I think is the ultimate kind of influence because you've osmosed you've seeped into the popular culture without it being widely understood that you were just one writer uh, at one time
1: why do you think it is that he was more widely acclaimed um more honored um in you know other countries than in his
2: own country um mm, it's interesting isn't it a prophet hath no honor in his own country yes i mean it, it that is certainly true that uh, and and any if you traveled at all in right of center intellectual circles anywhere on any continent you you couldn't avoid that conclusion um uh i established uh, and, and for a long time ran the alliance of kind of right of center, for want of a better word, eurosceptic parties in Europe. And Roger Scruton was uh, a huge, towering figure, not only for the people in the countries that he'd been directly involved with, uh, like the Czech Republic and Poland, but, uh, you know, for, for 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 Chileans and Brazilians and Thais, and, you know, I mean, I, I, in a way that, that wasn't the case here. I just think it's partly that slight uh, limitation that he was in britain always put into this box of oh he's the right wing guy you know he's the guy who makes the argument uh, for, for the the sort of semi house trained conservatives but makes it sound posh and acceptable uh, whereas overseas people were much more likely uh, to do him the courtesy of taking him on his own terms and and reading what he was actually saying and I mean, for, for, for sheer expansiveness of subject matter, I, I think he was hard to beat. You know, he wrote about theology, he wrote about opera, he wrote about fox hunting, he wrote about wine, he wrote about the evolution of the common law. Something that is often forgotten is that he was actually a, a trained barrister. Uh, and of course, he wrote about history and, and philosophy and, and politics and so on, always with the most exquisite style, and always with this extraordinary originality and freshness. And I think, you know, young people encountering him for the first time, you know, in Vancouver or in Santa Cruz or whatever, without the, the lens of, oh, this is the guy who's uh, making the right acceptable, as it were, were able to see much more clearly than people did in Britain.
1: How much of a source of personal sadness was it to him? Uh, that um, he wasn't more widely respected um, in Britain, particularly by the intellectual classes. If you look at, uh, in interviews and so forth, um, when talking about uh, the reaction to things like the Salisbury Review, to uh, the book he wrote, The Thinkers of the New Left, which was almost universally panned and then remaindered by Longman, his publisher, at the request of its kind of left-wing Authors um, he talked about this as you know seemingly a source of ongoing sadness. He really minded um, uh, at least sometimes um, that uh, that he wasn 't more widely respected by the um liberal gatekeepers that he wasn't sh- he, he 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 did receive some honors but not perhaps the very highest honors that the academic establishment can confer uh, on someone I, his intellectual I think he gift. understood
2: yeah no but i i think he understood that you just could not expect public honor if you were a conservative in his field i.e academic philosophy uh, there are all sorts of uh, arenas in which a conservative will be at a disadvantage. Uh, if you were a, an, a, a, an actor or a playwright uh, or an advertiser uh, or uh, a, a, even a, a secondary school teacher, you might want to keep your politics quiet except to your closest friends. But I think in his field of higher education, that is more true than of any other. And although you can get just about get through as a broadcaster or something as a conservative, it is almost impossible as a don. And and he he learnt that early. I don't think he'd realised it when he started, but he but he learnt it fairly early on. And in a way, the Salisbury Review was the sort of samizdat for non-left young. Uh, well, they weren't all young, but a lot of them were young academics in Britain. It was a place where. Uh, that that handful of conservatives in the academy were able to talk freely uh, and publish and read each other, and and he he, I think was very conscious of the of the the service he was providing. But he was an incredibly modest fellow. I mean, I don't mean he wasn't pleased when he got his knighthood and so on. I mean, he of course he was. I mean, he he's a human being, but he was genuinely humble in conversation, in a way that. Uh, a, a lot of people fake, and, and very few can fake it really well. But he—he—he he, he wasn't faking it. Uh, he was almost always the cleverest person in the room. I, I you know, I, I really struggle to think of anyone I've met who is so consistently knowledgeable and sharp. And yet, the sort of modesty with which he spoke to everyone, and the the way in which he would show a genuine interest. In what other people were saying, the way in which he would listen with a sort of intense generosity to... The half-baked convictions of of people who were, you know, uh, on on a completely different rung of the ladder was uh, was not something that anyone can can put on or fake. It was it was a, a an absolutely sincere thing. And one of the things, actually, that our friend and colleague Douglas Murray said in in his immediate take, which I thought was very true, was that although Roger had uh, complicated ideas about religion, in this regard, he lived an almost Sort of exemplary uh life of christian humility uh, he he understood uh sacrifice he understood uh living for people other than yourself and he understood that uh not making yourself the center of everything is in fact in the end a more fulfilling approach to life
1: finally dan um uh when you um, speak at his memorial service, which I'm sure you'll be asked to do, um, is there an abiding memory, a particular anecdote you'll tell which kind of captures Roger
2: perfectly? Well, you'll you'll have to turn up if that should happen. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is, Toby, I've, I've actually, uh, uh, I, I, I realise I've had quite a, a, a bad year in terms of my teachers dying. And I mean, it, it, it's just one of those things. It, it happened in quick succession that a lot of the men who were the most influential at the start of my adulthood uh, have all passed away in the last 18 months or so. Uh, first, my my uh, Oriel tutor, Jeremy Cato, uh, then Michael Spicer, who was my my real mentor uh, in politics, uh, then Norman Stone. And I. I after Norman had died, uh, I was actually I, I was having dinner with Roger uh, in Brussels. He'd he'd come out very kindly to to speak to a uh, international dinner there, where of course he was immensely valued. Uh, and I, I said to him, um, "Do you know I, I'm feeling more affected by this than I thought I would be? You know, you're you're prepared for your parents dying. You're prepared for things, and you know you're going to feel a sense of bereavement. But actually, I said, I'm I'm, I'm I'm feeling much more bereft than I thought I would by the sudden departure of all these people who were a big part of when I was feeling my way towards shaping my thoughts uh, when I was 18, 19 or so. And I said, you know, um, you're still there as this kind of rock. Your, your prose has been this friend and and guide to me and you have for 30 years. And he looked at me very sadly and said, look, I've, I've been diagnosed with cancer and I, 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 it was one of the like, i kind of really felt the world shifting on its axis like oh my god this is no 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 i can't i can't have this as well uh and so my first thought when i heard he he uh, passed away yesterday morning was god you know the, i wish i'd continued a couple of my conversations with him There's, i haven't finished asking him everything yet uh but then i thought well he has left behind the most extraordinary and complete corpus of work. Uh, he's left behind a library, a complete way of looking at the world, which is accessible to me and to everyone else because it's so beautifully written. And the thing I would suggest to everyone uh, listening to this podcast is, if you haven't yet started uh, reading his, his books, it almost doesn't matter which one you pick up, you'll be gripped within a couple of pages By the beauty of the writing and the good news is there's an awful lot of it to keep you going for a long time
1: daniel Hannon, thank you very much indeed for talking to quillette
0: if you would like to support quillette please consider becoming a patron head to our patreon page that's patreon.com forward slash quillette if you haven't already follow us on social media we're on twitter facebook and instagram do you like what you're hearing Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.